And a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies around issues uh, involving growth, fundraising, uh, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our show today is The U.S. Move, Relocate for Sales and Fundraising, how to think about your U.S. strategy uh, and relocating to the U.S. to access buyers, investors, and more. Our guest today is Yossi Mosul. Uh, Yossi is the founder and CEO of Ibex Medical Analytics, a cancer diagnostics company that utilizes artificial intelligence and computer vision. Yossi opened the U.S. office of his Israel-based company. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format of the show. It'll last about 90 minutes, and Yossi and I will spend the first half discussing the news and the macro picture of the day and some other topics. Then for the second half of the show, we'll focus on his topic of expertise, which is relocating to the U.S. After that, uh, and during, throughout that, we'll be taking call-ins from the audience. So in order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with call-in. To register, um, you can do so on the website at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. Once you've registered, um, you can actively ask questions in the chat. Um, the platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Um, so, uh, uh, Yossi, can, can you please introduce yourself uh, to our audience? Uh, welcome. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to the audience, and thanks for having me, uh, Stephen. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I uh, started uh, Ibex Medical Analytics uh, seven years ago, uh, back in Israel, where I come from. Uh, and I come from a computer science uh, background. That's uh, that's my academic background, uh, and most of my career actually was kind of an enterprise software. Uh, seven years ago, uh, me and my co-founder uh, Chaim Linhart, we we made this uh, leap together. Uh, none of us uh, were into entrepreneurs before. None of us had even worked in a healthcare or medical device uh, company before. Uh, but we, we uh, yeah, decided to make uh, the leap. I can't say that we, we did add some uh, people who, who, who know something about this business uh, along the way. Uh, and interestingly enough, what we set out to do on, on, on day one to bring AI into uh, the day-to-day -day practice, the clinical practice of pathology, helping pathologists do their work uh, more accurately, uh, faster, um, it's what the company over the past seven years we've developed the product, the technology, and it's now running, being deployed in, uh, in sites around the world. 
the, we're quite proud of that. That's great. Thank you. Um, and so I also, this show's happening on uh, Wednesday, October 18th. And I just wanted to, to, you know, share with our audience that this has been a really difficult week. Uh, and we are devastated by the terrorist attacks on Israel last week and the subsequent war and the suffering and the mounting casualties on both sides. Um, the situation is changing fast. Yesterday, there was an explosion at a hospital in Gaza that, apparent, that has killed hundreds. Um, President Biden is in Israel today, and the latest news is that some Arab leaders are canceling planned meetings with him. So the situation is developing, uh, and there's growing anxiety of a larger regional conflict, and we're dealing with the fog of war and doing our best to make sense of it. So I just wanted to dwell on this very difficult moment. Uh, and so, Yossi, did you have any, any further thoughts? Yeah, so of course, for me as an, uh, as an Israeli, uh, as a CEO of an Israel-based, uh, still most of the companies in Israel, that this, uh, yeah, these events hit uh, very close to home. And there's something, um, first of all, on a personal level, almost everyone in Israel is impacted, everyone is, is heartbroken. Uh, and also, when uh, looking at uh, at the company, of course, this is uh, it, it's a challenge to, to manage through uh, a time like this. Uh, we've had uh, from our friends uh, around the world. It's been a very strong show of uh, of support and uh, understanding for what we're going through, and, and that's uh, heartwarming in this time. Something else which. Uh, makes me uh, proud of uh, who I am, where I'm from, is the, the way Israelis are, are sticking together and uh, helping each other. And, and there's some incredible things going on in, in Israel. And even specifically in, in, in IBEX, the team is, is pulling together and then the company is, is operating. And I know uh, yeah, a, a lot of companies are in the same situation. Um, and just maybe one more thing to say, you were very gracious to ask me if I even wanted to do this show and this, and this situation. And you know, what I asked from my team, I, right now we're not uh, forcing anyone to do anything, but we asked everyone to do their best. And their best might be supporting their family or volunteering. And for some, it's to work. And for me, being outside of Israel, I feel it's really my best is just to keep on doing what I do. And that's why I'm here. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, th and thanks for joining us today. Um, so now I'll move on to the first topic we discussed, which is macro news. And I tend to look intentionally look at macro news through the perspective of the innovator, not the policymaker or the average person or the incumbent, uh, but the innovator. And so the first is, is that there's a prospect of war in the Middle East. Uh, and so that's, that is bad for innovators in general. Innovators want a relatively certain future and the prospect of war in the Mideast, it leads to greater uncertainty for innovators. It also usually leads to higher oil prices. Um, and we'll see if we see that as well, uh, either because of interference with shipments of oil or destruction of oil producing facilities or even oil boycotts by, uh, by OPEC. Um, so we may see higher oil prices and also inflation uh, as economies spend more on armaments, 
uh, and the price of oil goes up. Um, so the, the, the war in the Middle East is creating uncertainty, which is bad for innovators. Um, so uh, next I'll, I'll move on to um, that this past week, we've seen unprecedented turbulence in the treasury market. The treasury market is the market for US bonds. So the US government is constantly um, buying back, issuing new bonds, buying back bonds, um, rolling over bonds, you know, buying in old bonds, replacing them with new bonds. Uh, and there's always been a very, very strong demand all over the world for US Treasury bonds. Um, but when that demand weakens, that's bad news because the Treasury has to issue some of these bonds. And if there's less demand, that means you could have a spike in, you, you could have uh, a spike in rates, a fall in value of, of those bonds. So it's been a very tumultuous time. And this has been um, due to concerns around inflation, even before the start of the war in, in the Middle East. Um, and also U.S. deficit spending. Um, and also some global buyers are shifting away from U.S. bonds. So you might have sovereignties or others would have had all their Money, all their bond category money in U.S. bonds, and they might be shifting some of it to other uh, to other kinds of bonds, um, which is a small decision to them, but collectively could be a big decision to hit the U.S. Treasury at its auctions. So, this is also bad for innovators, uh, unfortunately, because uh, we want uh, relatively stable bond markets as innovators and um, the ability to for the U.S. Treasury to borrow easily so that there can be stability, at least in the U.S. The U.S. is a powerhouse of innovation globally. So is Israel, actually. Israel punches above its weight in innovation globally. Uh, 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 and But the U.S. tends to be uh, a core market that uh, other countries that are, say, less stable tend to go to the U.S. to innovate, among other things. Uh, and so I'll also throw in a, th a third uh, observation about macro news, which is that um, in about a couple of weeks ago, the Fed chairman said that we should expect interest rates, the risk-free rate interest rates, um, uh, to be higher longer. And this has had a really big trickle effect across uh, the innovation economy. So the innovation economy is young, innovative companies and the VC funds that back them. That's the innovation economy. Um, and so I think that there was very much a hope of all parties, especially VCs, that we saw the Fed raise rates from nearly zero to five and a half percent of the risk-free rate very quickly um, for, to address a specific inflation issue. And there was a hope in the innovation economy that this would address the inflation issue. Uh, and then the Fed would begin cutting rates. Uh, and so valuation multiples shrank when the Fed raised rates. And then if the Fed were to just cut those rates again soon, then valuation multiples would expand. Uh, and so there was, there was a, a lot of hope, especially among VCs, this would happen. And now the Fed chairman has said, and so this, this hope also led to a paralysis, which is that people were not willing to reprice assets to do down rounds of companies to let companies be acquired at low prices. Uh, because there was this hope that rate interest rates would spring back down, uh, valuation multiples would spring back up, and then people would get a value closer to what they got during the boom two years ago. Um, but I think this Fed statement is now having a trickle on impact where that argument is being resolved in favor of the fact that rates are not going to go back down soon. So valuation multiples are not going to spring back up soon. And so therefore, 
um, there's no reason to wait a year or two years before taking a down round valuation or selling the company or that sort of thing. So that's uh, an interesting thing. So I'll pause there. Just you'll see, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know how much you think about macro news, but just any any reflections on on, on these topics? Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll just answer the, the, the question about really how much do I think about macro news? And I have to say, not so much. <laughs> um, well, for one, I don't have much uh, control over them. Of course, they do have an impact on what we do, but it, it sounds a bit strange because I'm kind of managing a fairly small company, but kind of my, my strategic horizon, I'm, I'm thinking of like IBEX as a 15-year journey. Not that it ends there, but at that point uh, where we can really uh, achieve our vision. And then by definition, over this time horizon, we're going to have different market conditions, different macro conditions. And, and, and the point for us is more just to, well, weather the storm and be, uh, we've always been conservative in the way we, uh, I the valuations that we get and the way we spend cash, uh, serving us well that now. And uh, I think we'll, yeah, keep that course. Great, thanks. So a, a couple more topics. So there, there's continues to be a debate about whether we will, the U.S. will see a recession or a soft landing, or I've also heard this called as a, a drive-by recession, which would be a short recession, um, or, or dodge a recession. And uh, it's still not clear, um, although if you cycle back six months to 12 months ago, uh, you know, uh, pretty much every economist on Wall Street was predicting we will see a contraction where at the end of an expansionary period, a contraction always follows an expansionary period. Um, and then a, a contraction is bad for the innovation economy for a couple of reasons. Uh, it causes people to be less optimistic about the future. It causes us, uh, market corrections and valuation uh, multiple pull-ins. Um, and it also makes the big buyers of healthcare, such as hospitals and such as payers and providers and pharma as a tech as a tech buyer and others it makes them feel poor and less spendy and less willing to make a bet on a new technology so in the innovation economy we very much don't want there to be a full-blown recession uh, and it, it was looking like um you know so cycle back six months ago 12 months ago pretty much everyone's predicting a recession in the next two to four quarters or so that's that's now um and uh we're not in a recession um uh, and we may have a soft landing or be dodging a recession, which would be great if that's the case. Um, and so we're continuing to track that. A number of economists changed their projections to say, maybe we'll dodge a, a recession, which would be nice. We have a combination of growing uncertainty, but also a lot of government spending. And usually that sort of fiscal expansionary uh, pressure helps to postpone or avoid a, a recession. Uh, so, um, and then, so that, that's recession talk. Um, and then, uh, but right now, it does not look like we're imminently about to go into a recession, which is good considering that a year ago, people thought it was pretty much inevitable that sometime around now we would be seeing that. Um, I'll also mention IPOs. We're watching IPOs very carefully. The IPO window has been closed for seven quarters um, and uh, there have been occasional IPOs. And what we really want to see, we, we really, as in the innovation economy, we really want to see the IPO window open up again. And the NASDAQ's pretty high. It's up um, 35% for the year. Uh, that would suggest that we ought to be able to see uh, and, and the IPO window open. And we want to see the IPO window open because there's this capital food chain that goes from venture to private equity to, to IPO. Uh, and then uh, 
uh, an IPO is a very important way that people who made investments in the beginning get their money out at the end. And so sometimes those are entrepreneurs getting their money out at the end. And they, they'd like to know today that it's reasonable to think they can get their money out at the end. Um, but then also um, there are invest there are professional investors who will take their realized capital gain out of that and they'll turn it around and put it into a new venture fund. And so because they can't get their money out because the IPO window has been closed for seven quarters, therefore they can't uh, realize the gain and put the money back into the economy. So we'd like to see the IPO window open. And what's happened is first we saw the J&J consumer division go out a few months ago and that, that IPO did well. Um, and what we want to see happen is we want to see the stock go up and stay up, go up modestly and stay up. So if the stock went up 15% and stayed up, uh, ideally for a year, um, uh, and we want to see that happen in life science and we want to see that happen in tech. Um, and so the J&J consumer division went public uh, and that was well received and performed well. And then since then, we've seen a bunch of IPOs with mixed uh, very mixed returns. Um, uh, and so, uh, uh, and that includes um, ARM, the UK chip manufacturer as a tech company and Instacart, um, uh, the tech company. Um, I think they were down last I checked about 15%. So uh, whereas other stocks, IPOs have performed relatively well. So it's it's mixed. So we're not getting a full-throated um, return opening of the IPO market. We want to see that because there's many unicorns in tech and in digital health that want to IPO. And if the market looks good, their boards will tell their CEOs, prepare to IPO. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and so the market is so mixed right now that uh, those boards are probably not telling the companies to, do the, to, to spend the money to prepare for IPO. So um, in, but we're just gonna continue to watch that. So in, in other news, um, uh, so Birkenstock IPO'd this week uh, and was down 13%. So that's Birkenstock, not a tech company, not a, um, not, not a life science company. They're a sandal company. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, th that's contributing to the perception that it's a weak opening of the IPO window uh, and, and that we may, we may not see it, the IPO window fully open and a lot of other companies try to go out. Um, in addition, Business Insider reports that Hinge Health Hinge Health is a really outstanding digital health company that sells musculoskeletal solutions to the employer budget. And that's a great, interesting category. It's a bellwether category for the space um, that they're preparing for an IPO um, when market conditions improve. So uh, we're seeing investors pushing for IPOs. IPO is usually a good step for a company. It gives that company a second currency to do acquisitions, among other things. It can have a, a high, it can, they can achieve a higher valuation with an IPO sometimes. Um, so that's interesting to see a bellwether digital health company is preparing to go public. Uh, and their CEO is Daniel Perez. Um, so in addition, um, there's a healthcare payments tech firm called Waystar Technologies announced it has filed to go public. And so U.S. News and World Report says its IPO could value the company at $8 billion. This was backed by private equity firms EQT and Bain Capital. Um, and so th this is interesting because this is a, a high-quality, stable, probably cash flow positive, although we, don't, we, we haven't seen their documents, but it's, it's likely cash flow positive, company in the revenue cycle management space 
for providers. Um, and that, that's a favored space. Providers do spend a lot of money on their revenue cycle management. Revenue cycle management has a big financial return for providers. Um, uh, so this is a great high quality space. And what typically happens here is that um, private equity firms look to, to buy a company at a reasonable price, make changes, grow it, and then IPO it, push to IPO it at a higher price. And so this is a company that, that could make it out. If, if it's cash flow positive, if it has high quality earnings as cash flow positive, th this could make it out in the current environment. So we're seeing some talk of digital health IPOs, which is a good thing. Um, so, uh, uh, and then uh, I'll also cite that uh, a month ago, there was a report by um, PitchBook analyst, Aaron DeGagney, and he cited companies that he hears of as likely to go public. And so the companies in digital health. So he mentioned Noom, Roe, Everly Health, Quantum Health. But those are some companies to watch in this sector. Um, so um, you'll see any, any, any thoughts on uh, a recession or uh, digital companies IPOing? Yeah, no recession. I think probably my prediction of whether we'll have a recession or a soft landing or not is uh, probably as good as anyone else, but, but I don't think it's very good. Um, yeah, I have a question for you, though. I'm kind of curious. Um, is really like the performance of stocks in the few weeks after an IPO, even a few months, is that really historically been a good predictor of long-term performance? So um, it, it's a good question. Certainly, there can be a lot of volatility. Uh, and um, uh, so, uh, uh, and uh, in addition, um, uh, buy-siders analyze um, IPOs and they say that, uh, that when I say buy-sider, here I mean the Fidelities, the Black Rocks, etc. of the world. And they say, on average, it's good to get into high-quality IPOs and hold them. Because when you check in six months later, a year later, two years later, you probably have more alpha, more return than if you mm -hmm. simply, than your typical trade where you buy into IBM you know, today on the belief that it will go up. So IBM might go up 8% in a year, but your IPO might go up 15, 30% in a year. Of course, some also go down, especially if you get into a low quality IPO. So that this causes those buy-siders to compete with each other for allocations in an IPO. Uh, and what they do then is they'll often promise that they will hold and not sell for a year. So you, you're a bank running the book on a hot IPO believed to be good quality. And you want what you really want to do is go to the best buy side institutions, the best mutual funds, and have them demand big allocations, and then do the entire do most of the book just to a few of those companies, and then you'll say to them, "Will you hold it for a year?" Um, uh, because your bank is trying to support the stock in the aftermarket to make sure there is liquidity uh, and there's no. Um, speculative reasons why there'd be high volatility, which will, which will, uh, you know, scare a, a lot of people or, uh, about the stock if that's the case. And so then these um, buy side firms agree to, they'll hold it for, you know, for a year or so. Um, and then if they, I think they don't legally have to, but if they wind up selling before a year, then that same investment bank, the next time they have a hot IPO, they're, they're not going to go to that buy sider anymore um, mm -hmm. uh, for that. So, um, uh, that and that they and then they actually literally price the deal. They'll say something like, "This company has average margins. The 
the average for companies, the average valuation multiple for companies like this is, you know, seven times uh, forward revenue or, or, you know, 12 times forward EBITDA or something like that. Um, and so uh, then we're going to price it to average, and then we're going to apply an IPO discount of 15%. And that discount of 15%, that is to make the market want us and to reward those people who get in early and hold it. Um, uh, and so uh, then in a perfect world, if everything is judged correctly, um, and then there's a small amount is set aside for the retail investor. Um, in a perfect world, if everything is judged correctly, then they'll the, the stock will float. Uh, it will go up about 15% and stay up. <laughs> um, and then from that point, it'll grow at, at what is the average for a company like that, 8% a year or whatever going into the future. Um, uh, and so um, with, 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 and ideally you won't see huge volatility. Ideally the shorts on wall street will not decide you're their favorite stock and play games, uh, uh, trying to run your stock price down or something like that. Uh, so does, it, does that answer your, does that answer your questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I learned, I learned something new. So, so basically what you're saying is that when, uh, the stock that it was the high quality IP, but basically the, the buyers were not of the, the top quality. Yeah. So, um, uh, with a high quality IPO, the, the, the company has good earnings. Maybe it, it has products that are market leaders with high margins, with great brands, with a history of, of stable um, earnings, stable and growing earnings. That would be a very high quality company. And then they go to the high, to the IPO buyers, the Fidelity Black Rocks of the world, and get their commitments, and they price it at under that. Um, but it certainly is the case that you'll have very risky companies that choose to go public early, uh, or you'll have follower companies, you know, a retailer who is, who is market share, num you know, in fifth place, who has, who has thin margins, um, will also try to go public and, and should get a lower, a lower valuation multiple if they do that. But there's a saying on Wall Street that, that you can price any risk. So, you know, does the fifth place retailer who's known to be not well run, can they never IPO? No, they, they can IPO, um, but uh, but the, but in theory the risk ought to be priced into the to the stock price. Um, but uh, so high quality and low quality stock buyers that, that that's a more controversial term. But in general, the conventional wisdom is is that mutual funds, which are long only, can only buy; they can't short, um, and that and uh, that you want to get them to buy and and be happy just holding. That would be heaven as a CEO of a public company. Um, but it inevitably, but maybe you can't get enough of their attention. You have to bring in other investors with different motivations. Um, so that's not so, so great. Um, and then finally you could be, uh, become the, 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 the company of interest of, of the shorts. So for example, uh, GoPro and, uh, and a number of other, uh, stocks out there in the past, uh, have, uh, become the obsessive target of, uh, of people who are looking to short them uh, and they play games with the stock. And that, that's kind of a nightmare if you're the CEO because your stakeholders are looking to you to have the company have a, a fair and growing value over time. And instead the stock price is swinging all around and you have to be explaining that all the time. Um, and, and your stakeholders come to not like you, um, even though you're, you're not doing it. It's, 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 uh, it's hedge funds in the market that are doing it. So um, let, let's see. So then, um, uh, 
So uh, let's see, I'll, I'll just mention, I, we're still in a state where VCs have raised a lot of money and they have a lot of theoretical uh, dry powder, which they have not been using, uh, and where lead investors are not leading in the space. And that's because of uncertainty. And I, I see pathways to resolving some of that uncertainty, but we're also seeing issues like persistent inflation and a war in the Middle East that are adding uh, new uncertainties to the market. But the analogy I use is that is that there's a pool and the CEOs are swimming in the pool and the VCs have cash to invest, but they're sitting on the bleachers and they're not jumping in the pool. And they say they're not jumping in the pool because of uncertainty. Um, and I, I'm a little bullish. I think we'll see some of that uncertainty resolved in the next six months and those VCs deals pick up in the next six months. And I think the conventionalism is that uh, it's going to be more than 12 months before the uncertainty is resolved and VC investment levels pick up substantially. Um, so uh, any any other thoughts just on on macro issues and investor environment, uh, Yossi, before we move on to other things? No more thoughts. So next is industry reports. And so this is a where if someone has published a report in the last week or two where you found the findings of it interesting, this is a chance to bring up any industry reports. So and I, I always bring up the Rock Health reports on funding when I see them. But this past week, I, I didn't see any particular uh, industry reports to, to report to our audience. Uh, Yossi, did you, did you see any that, uh, for your industry? No. Um, so uh, next is is news and trade journal news. Uh, and so for our audience, by the way, this is a good juncture for you to jump in. If you saw a story in the trade journals or in the news about digital health that you wanted to bring to our attention, you can put that in the chat room and we'll react to that. Um, so um, I, I attended health. Uh, Yossi, did, did you attend health? You did? Um, and uh, I think a takeaway I had was um, that we're still at the beginning uh, of, um, we're, we're at the, so is that rate in the last year, rates are up over 5% and investor um, willingness to invest is down due to uncertainty. And this is overall really bad for the innovation economy. Um, and, it, it, and everyone is predicting it will lead to, um, to wind downs, to an industry-wide shakeout, to down rounds, to belt tightening, even to consolidation. Uh, and I think, and we've been talking about that for more than four quarters, um, but I think that the takeaway is that we're still at the beginning of this and a lot of companies are still behaving like it's not, it hasn't become real for them. Um, and so I think that we still have more of the, of the belt tightening, um, shakeouts, wind downs, uh, etc. ahead of us. Um, and that uh, people weren't talking about that. There was a lot of, of optimism. Um, uh, and there was a there was, uh, and, but and I and my interpretation of that was that we're still at the beginning, and it hasn't sunk in yet. So you'll see, did you have any takeaways from the conference health and, and any reactions to to the uh, to the feeling that I got when I was there? Yeah, so, uh, a few. First of all, it was my first time at the conference, so I was impressed by by how uh, large it is. Some some people told me it's becoming the new uh, JPM in a way, where it's like the place that you you have to be. So I, I was glad I uh, I went. Um, I agree, we was uh, upbeat, uh, general uh, atmosphere, um, and 
Yeah, for me, there were two, uh, the, the, the conversation about AI, I think is still uh, kind of, you know, that, that's one of my interests. So, um, and, and I feel still there's a lot of confusion about how uh, AI is going to help uh, in healthcare. I'm, I'm a bit, uh, I think generative AI and AI in general uh, will have uh, a lot of impact on, on the research side, biomarker development, drug development. Uh, I think seeing that come into mainstream healthcare in the near future, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about it. I can, I can tell a story. I met with uh, John Halamka from the Mayo Clinic. He told me he used ChatGPT. He asked it uh, a question, a medical question. He got like amazing answer. Nicely worded, citing sources, it was great. Turns out when he looked at the sources, uh, the, the journal articles were invented. There are no such journals. So I think still we're very far from just having this technology. I'm not sure we'll even ever be at a point where this kind of technology, generative AI, will be something that you can use in a clinical setting because it's just, but by the, there is a measure of unpredictability there, which I think regulatory uh, yeah, bodies are going to, to struggle with. So, so that's uh, one. And of course, I'm a more bullish about the application of AI technology such, such as, as we're developing. And the other thing which I'm interested to hear what you, this uh, general catalyst uh, announcement of uh, acquiring a hospital, a hospital system, uh, that, that, that generated a lot of interest. Uh, I'm skeptic about that. Uh, I can share, even in our, our own small world, we were thinking, you know, it's a classic question that VCs ask you, do you want to be a software that manages, uh, you know, taxi stations used to manage their taxis, or do you want to be Uber? And of course they, they hear, yeah, you want to be Uber. Uh, I, I don't think it's, that's typically the right answer in healthcare. Being a healthcare provider uh, is very tricky. It's hard for me to make the bridge between a VC suddenly becoming an operator of a complex entity like a healthcare system. I understand their motivations. They want to have like this pilot site. Um, I think it will be very hard and very expensive. What do, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, so let, let me uh, react to each of those. So, um, uh, and by the way, you have an AI company in healthcare. Is that is that right? Um, yeah. And that the kind I, of AI. I'm not skeptical in general about the application of AI in healthcare. I'm very bullish. I just don't think everything that people are thinking right now might happen is going to happen anytime soon. But of course, there are very strong applications. And and you work uh, and so. You do computer vision in pathology, which, by the way, a lot of people think that is one of the most outstanding uses of AI in healthcare is computer vision in pathology. And computer vision is a form of machine learning. Is, is, is that right? Um, so, so very interesting. So yeah, I actually I have what I would call a contrarian thesis about generative AI in healthcare. And so at health, one of the biggest user generated themes of health was AI. Every booth talking about AI. You, you talk to the 
to the booth rep about their company. It turns out that AI is very tangential. You know, AI is in their word processor or something. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it was it was the buzzword of of the of the event and was a few years ago as well. And but now there's the story of generative AI. Um, but I'm I, I'm a bit of a bear and a skeptic on generative AI in healthcare. And so if you cycle back before the pandemic, maybe a year before the pandemic, the FDA said something about AI, and they said we're seeing more and more devices. Uh, so software and devices that have an AI element to them. And we want to be supportive of, of AI and we think it has great potential for good. Um, but we think that AI needs to be explained in healthcare. It needs to be explainable. Um, uh, and so you could have two AIs and one of them, uh, you know, is uh, high ethic is, you know, you could have a doctor is 97% good. And then an AI that's explainable is 98% good. And then an AI that's not explainable is 99% good. Um, and the FDA is, is putting its voice here on the side of AI that is explainable because if it makes a mistake, humans make mistakes, AI makes mistakes, but you need to have uh, smart people go back in and understand why it made a mistake and ideally correct it for the better. Uh, whereas if it's not explainable, presumably it can't be, um, you, you can't understand why it made a mistake. So. But the, the FDA voiced that concern. And then you look at generative AI and it hallucinates, it makes things up and it can't be explained. Um, and so uh, that, that's why in certain areas, um, uh, you know, especially say areas that require FDA clearance, I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a skeptic and a bear on generative AI in healthcare. And it may not be needed. I mean, you, you, we've had algorithmic diagnosis uh, for decades. Um, you, you could have an algorithm written with, in pencil on a piece of paper and use it to diagnose someone. You don't, it doesn't have to be generative AI. So that, that, that's my, my first thought about uh, Just AI. a comment about the FDA and then we can go back to general catalyst. Um, so, so generally I have to say that despite my prior uh, expectations, our interactions with the FDA, I found them to be reasonable and smart people. Like it's not, I always love what they're saying, but I understand where they're coming from and the, the kind of requests they're asking for, from us. Sometimes they're expensive, they're a burden, but, 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 but I can understand. This point about explainability, um, that, 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 that I'm, I'm not in complete agreement because um, I, I'm not sure that's the right term because if you even if you go and ask a pathologist why is this it's not a rule-based discipline pathologists know how to diagnose cancer because they've seen enough cancers and they yeah this is also cancer so if you ask why is it cancer because it's cancer it looks like cancer uh, and, and they can they, they can explain that if you really but at the end they just see it um, and in a way, our, the algorithms are trained in a similar way. They just see enough cancers, um, and then uh, yeah, and, and then they can recognize a new cancer. So I, I think what what you mentioned is maybe a, a, be, a better kind of way of is not explainability because people can't always explain either. It's more kind of uh, reasonability. So that the, our algorithm, let's say, it sometimes it makes mistakes. Every algorithm makes mistakes. But pathologists, when they see it, they say, yeah, I can see why it thought that. I don't agree. But that's a reasonable mistake a pathologist could make. So I, I think that, that that's kind of, you want your algorithm to be, not to hallucinate, right? Not to suddenly completely say something which is out of whack. So I, I would think of it not as 
yeah, this may be kind of a term of reasonableness, sorry, and not, not explaining the ability necessarily. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah, so moving on to general catalyst, th this is really interesting. And uh, what I'll, uh, so um, the way I'll, and so general catalyst has announced it's looking to buy a health system and it has created a vehicle called the health assurance transformation corporation to do this. And general catalyst is a VC fund and a private equity fund. And so buying a mature health system would be looked at as a private equity deal, not a VC deal in general. Um, and uh, so I, there's a couple of things going on here. So the, the first is that healthcare is, um, is one of the biggest parts of the entire economy. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's 20%, depending on how you define it, it's 20% it's or over 20% of the economy. So it's enormous. Um, and, uh, and software has been eating the world. Software has been eating B2B and B2C, but software is less far along in healthcare and therefore it has farther still to go in healthcare. And we can see things that worked in B2B. You could view healthcare as a kind of a specialized B2B category. Um, and we can see things that work in B2B in office environments, and they have not yet been adopted in healthcare. It's a pretty good bet that down the road it will be adopted in healthcare. But what makes healthcare so special is, is that it's very specialized. Also, it's highly regulated. Also, often decision makers are members of guilds, like doctors are members of a medieval guild, uh, and, and often act to sort of protect themselves, sort of like medieval masons protecting themselves from other, other purveyors of masonry. Um, uh, and uh, also that in healthcare, very often the, the buyer is different than the decision maker is different than the payer. So the buyer might be, um, uh, you know, or, or I'm sorry, the user uh, is the patient, the decision maker is the doctor uh, or prescriber, and then the payer is the commercial payer or government. Uh, and they, their interests are at odds with each other. Um, and so that, that's part of what makes healthcare so different. Um, and uh, then, and so what's happened is we've had this experiment, you know, uh, for 30 years, but especially since uh, 2009, which was the end of the global financial crisis and the beginning of the Fed's zero interest rate policy of putting huge amounts of capital to have software finally eat this, um, this very special protected large industry healthcare. And there are many VCs who are claiming that their experience having been doing this at, at this job for 10, 20, 30 years, that healthcare is poorly suited to this. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, that healthcare, um, it costs more to build a product in healthcare. That's, that's bad from a, so with VC, everyone accepts it's very risky, but there's a desire that at the end of the process, you have a product that has high margins that scales rapidly. If you have a product with high margins that scales rapidly, it's worth a whole lot and that pays back the investors who, who, who spent the risk dollars to do this. Um, and so, uh, and then in, in an investor portfolio, you could have one company that's a giant hit, and then you could have seven out of 10 are failures. And that's okay because the one company that was the giant hit uh, makes up for it. And there's a concern in it uh, among VCs that this doesn't work in 
in healthcare. That fundamentally the model of digital health doesn't work in healthcare because you don't get the one out of 10 that, that performs extraordinarily well. And therefore the value of the portfolio is, is too weak to justify creating a second venture fund. So that's an, it's a pessimistic argument. Uh, it's a critique of the industry. It's a minority of VCs are, are claiming that this is the case. And uh, they say this is the case for a couple of reasons. You have to spend much more, twice as much to build a product in digital health because you have to build the, spend on the digital people and the healthcare people to make the digital health product. And then when you sell it, it doesn't scale well. It doesn't scale like a B2B product in the B2B market would scale. And therefore you don't get the, the big, um, the, 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 the companies with the huge returns that balance out the portfolio. Um, so, and then, uh, and this is partly due to issues like it's a highly regulated environment and the interests of the, of the parties are divergent and uh, doctors play an outside role, outsized role due to tradition and regulation, et cetera. Um, but that, uh, uh, and among other things, the people who run uh, healthcare systems, medical practices are often run by doctors and they're terrible businessmen at running enterprises. And then the doctors are also often the buyers of tech and they're terrible buyers of tech. They don't make good tech buying decisions. <laughs> um, and this makes VCs very frustrated. Uh, and so if in this minority critique of that things are not working to build software companies to sell software into the healthcare system, uh, the way that you can ultimately fix that and resolve it is to enlarge the problem and say, are we trying to sell software to a hospital and they won't buy it, although they should buy it. And if they buy it, they won't use it well and they won't run their business well. Well, then let's just buy the hospital. We have enough money. We think we know how to address this. We'll buy the hospital or we'll start a healthcare services company. And so a minority of VCs are willing to invest in what they're calling tech enabled services. This idea is, is that you're not selling software, you're selling a service, you're selling a diagnostic test result, you're selling an experience, a prescription, an experience with a doctor that leads to a prescription, you're, you're selling this other thing. Um, and that you have a, a born, a, a, a company that is born in the 21st century, born with 21st century technology. Oftentimes the suits are running the company, the turtlenecks are running the company and the white lab coats are not running the company, um, which is a, a new model in healthcare. And that this, this company will behave differently. Um, and it may, it may pursue the fee for value budgets of healthcare instead of pursuing the traditional fee for service budgets in healthcare. So that, that's part of what's going on here is that there's a minority of investors who are saying, let's give birth to new technology enabled services companies, not software companies, but technology enabled services companies in healthcare, or let's even buy a existing medical practice um, or a hospital uh, and try to convert it um, because we're so frustrated with the game of making software and selling software to traditional healthcare buyers. Um, uh, Uh, so that's uh, part of what's of what's going on there, um, and uh, uh, so uh, anyway, so you'll see any any, and so you have General Catalyst is addressing this issue of that 
it's it's very hard and sometimes doesn't work to build software companies that sell software into the big budgets of healthcare. So we're going to buy a hospital and see if we can uh, run it like a 21st century enterprise and buy the right technology and change the, the, the healthcare delivery system to get it right and maybe use it as a testing bed for our other companies. So anyway, so that, that that's uh, that, that's you know just some thoughts on that. Any any reaction to that, um, uh, Yossi? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's some challenges to one of the challenges to the to this model, for instance. If you, let's say take it to our domain or even others in healthcare, is that um, even if you buy the hospital system, um, still scaling, uh, it's very difficult to scale in a, globally, right? To kind of even, even let's say you've you've done this in a single hospital system, you can't easily now replicate it to the whole. Every new hospital that even if you go and acquire them, every one you, you know where you start, maybe you have the template, but you need to start from from scratch. So I'm not not sure about the, the scalability even of the uh, of this model. Uh, but by the way, in, in, in our specific domain, I was if, if I were in private equity. I don't think I'll ever be, but if, if I were, I, I think there is a play here to do to uh, acquire, uh, let's say, pathology labs, and then make them into better pathology labs by by investing in, in technology and digitization and AI. Uh, and I've even seen a case or two of, of, of that happening. And from our perspective, it's interesting because it's it's, it's an opportunity. That's great. And so, by the way, for, for time reasons, I'm going to skip some of our some of our the usual agenda that we cover um, <clears throat> to get in order to get to the point where you're talking about uh, your expertise here. But I'll also mention that. So uh, uh, a, a digital health executive uh, who's a commentator named Rick Renard, um, he spotted the quiet closing down of Robin Healthcare. So Robin Healthcare is a clinical documentation company for orthopedics. They raised $50 million from Kosla Ventures. Uh, and I thought what was significant here that Rick spotted sort of the quiet closing down of, of, um, uh, of Robin Healthcare. And he calls this as the starting gun for the shakeout. Um, so it's worth checking out Rick Renard on, on Twitter um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for signs here. And I think there's more to come than there's more in the future, more innings of, of shakeout to come in the future than there have been in the past. And so just interesting that, that Rick Renard um, uh, is, is sort of calling out the shutting down of Robin Healthcare in the last two weeks as a starting gun for that. So uh, any thoughts, uh, 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 Yossi, on just the, the, the trend? A lot of young company leaders are being told by their VCs to do belt tightening. Um, we're also seeing, you know, more um, more uh, layoffs and uh, and shutdowns than new company formation uh, as well. Uh, so, any any thoughts about um, about that in the marketplace? Uh, yeah, well, I think it's just it's, it's a natural reaction to the, the trends you were discovering and describing before with companies uh, raising uh, too much cash or the too high valuation and yeah, and then the, the realization that that's not going that they're not going to, they're going to have to raise down rounds in the future is sinking in. And then the next immediate step is what you're, uh, describing. Um, 
Yeah, we're, we're fortunate. We, we just recently raised the round, so we're uh, fortunately not not in that situation uh, ourselves. Uh, but I, I am seeing it uh, quite a bit of it around. Even companies, while raising around, uh, letting employees uh, go because they, they, they realize they just the, the current size of the company is not sustainable compared to the size of the business. That's great. So now moving on to discussing upcoming conferences. Um, so here, uh, it, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll throw out some some conferences and, and for our audience, if you are thinking of going to a conference, uh, you can throw the name of the conference in the chat room. We can react uh, to that conference. Um, uh, so uh, uh, and in this discussion of conferences, I'll also mention health and J.P. Morgan. So I think the way to think about health is that health is about the health conference, which this year was in October in Las Vegas. This is about innovation across all of healthcare. So we never really had a conference like that before, and it's great that we have a conference like that. And who you'll see at this conference primarily is young companies and young company leaders, and also VCs. There's a very strong attendance of VCs at this conference. That really makes it an investor conference. It doesn't call itself an investor conference, but it's really an investor conference. Um, and then it was born in the world of payers and providers. So it's very strong in payers and providers, but it wants to be aspirationally in the world of pharma tech and consumer digital health and also FDA risk stuff as well, prescri uh, prescriber channel stuff. Um, and it's not as strong in those. So it's really strong in the, in the innovation with young companies, um, uh, and VCs and VCs are are in it. Um, young companies are in it to raise money from VCs. VCs are often in it to showcase their companies to bigger VCs, to, to VCs that are later in the capital in the capital chain. So to show to show their Series A company to a Series B investor or to a private equity investor. Um, now, in a trade show, you'd expect the the incumbents and consolidators to be there as well. The the product purchasers, the incumbents, the consolidators. And this is an area, unfortunately, that health is is weak on as well. Um, you might see a pharma innovation exec, but you're probably not going to see a pharma brand manager who would buy your tech product. Um, you might see a health plan innovation exec, but you're less likely to see a health plan plan manager who would buy your tech product. Um, so uh, I know that the conference is trying, it's only like six years old. They're trying to grow. They're trying to get better at this. They're trying to attract those people um, to this. Uh, so, that, so if you go, you're going primarily for visibility, to learn from the great programming, to meet with VCs. But if you're trying to sell your product, there's not going to be a lot of your product buyers who are there. If you're trying to sell your company, there will be some corp dev people who would buy your company, um, but there's going to be not so many there. So now, JP Morgan is something different. JP Morgan has been around since the 80s. It used to be the H&Q conference. Its core is is life science and its core is like crossover rounds and IPO and public companies in life sciences. Um, and it's so successful at bringing top executives from those companies and investors in those companies that everybody else has just chosen to also go to JP Morgan, but there's no programming because you're, you're not invited by JP Morgan to their conference. Um, you wind up getting a hotel room and scheduling a bunch of meetings. 
And the kinds of people who go to JP Morgan are the CEO, the CFO, the head of investor relations, the corporate venture fund, maybe the head of corporate development as well. Those are the kinds of people who go to JP Morgan for big companies and small companies. And they're in meeting mode. They're, they're willing to do short meetings at JP Morgan. So they're trying to do eight or more short meetings per day. Uh, and so if you reach out to them as a young company, there's a good chance they're going. There's a good chance that, um, that, that they'll do their meetings. Product buyers do not attend, you know, at the enterprise, the product buyer, the plan manager um, doesn't attend this meeting, but the corp dev person does attend JP Morgan. The CEO, the CFO do attend JP Morgan. They're willing to meet. Um, and so, uh, uh, and so that you can expect that kind of meeting. And JP Morgan is an investor conference. It's not a trade show. Um, it just attracts, a very, it just gets very good attendance of senior people across many of the sectors of, of healthcare. And, People are talking about health as a killer of the JP Morgan conference. Uh, and it could be, but it's not at all challenging JP Morgan on the basis of public life science companies. JP Morgan is still absolutely outstanding for that. It's more that those early stage venture investors, those early stage companies who JP Morgan was never made for them. They went there because everyone else was going there. But now you have a conference made for you that has gotten a significant traction in getting uh, across Different, across all of healthcare, the VCs and the young companies uh, are attending health. And so you can go to health to raise money from those VCs and you might not need to go to JP Morgan uh, afterwards. So that, that, that's my take on, on, on those two. Whereas if you're a public life science company, it's very clear that your CEO, CFO, head of investor relations and corp dev need to go to JP Morgan and maybe you don't need to go to, to health. So that, 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 that's my overview of that. Any, any thoughts on, and JP Morgan is coming up second week of January. And I'm, I'm going to both uh, this year. Um, but if I were a young company CEO, I might try going only to health and see if I accomplish my agenda at health. And then I could, you know, continue with a, another meeting at, at JP Morgan if I need to a couple of months later. So you'll see any, any thoughts on, um, on uh, health and JP Morgan? Well, one thought is that I, I wish somebody would have given me this uh, nice explanation uh, three, four years ago about both conferences. And yeah, I, I agree. I think for a com young company raising uh, fairly early, if you had to pick one, I think health uh, is a better choice. Uh, for me, I'm not sure it's true for, yeah, our buyers are not at either conference. So it's primarily for a meet meeting with, uh, with investors. Um, yeah, and if you go to JPM, be ready. If you're not an investor yourself, uh, sitting somewhere, then be ready to walk a lot and bring an umbrella based on last year's experience. And finally, you know, also call out in Boston um, tomorrow is the Future of Aging Forum in Boston. I like to bring up age tech and aging uh, things. And so this is at eldercare.org slash forum to sign up for this conference. I'm looking forward to going. I'll see, I'll see some of you there at the, at the Future of Aging Forum in Boston. And this is going to be a good place in Boston to meet young companies in age tech and also policymakers who are making decisions about spending on elder care and that sort of thing. So you'll see any conferences that you plan to go to or you want to call out to the audience and recommend? Yeah, I'll, I'll be going. I, IBEX will be in a, a conference called the Path Visions. It starts in Orlando. It starts in uh, October 29th. And uh, if you're a, a, well, 
AI and pathology enthusiast, then this is a, a place you, you have to be in, I think. Um, and I think if you're in general kind of an AI and healthcare enthusiast, this could be an, an interesting place to come and see. I think you'll be surprised by the advances uh, in, in the specific domain. That's great. Uh, so now at this juncture, we're going to move on to the main topic of the show, which is uh, which is relocating to the U.S. for commercialization, fundraising, and more. Um, so why don't I just start with just a very a very open ended question, uh, which was, you know, why relocate to the U.S.? What was your decision making, and what was your what was your process? Uh, and I think you relocated to Boston. So why so why did you relocate to Boston? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so part of it, uh, I think the, the core of answering this question comes from basically the, the, the business strategy. Which geo do you see as, as the most critical for the product? One advantage and disadvantage Israeli companies have is that Israel is not a market. Uh, so, in, in effect, it's a beta site at best. You can, you can have a few customers. You're not going to build your uh, your business there. And I say it's, it's a, well, it's a disadvantage because we don't have a local market. It's an advantage because we, from day one, we're looking outside. Um, and traditionally, outside for Israeli companies has been uh, the U.S. Um, because a lot of the funding comes from there. And I think just the, the U.S. in a way, well, it's a very large market and also easier for uh, just, just language, uh, it's e easier for Israelis uh, uh, to go there. Now, th this is uh, generally true in tech. In health tech, it's even more true. And, and here, and, and the reason for that is well, the U.S. in general, of course, it's, it's, it's a huge market. But in health tech, because of, uh, forgive me for saying, but because of the inefficiencies in the U.S. healthcare, it's inordinately large. Uh, I can just uh, I, I'll give an example again. I stick to my domain. That's what I know. So if you want to have your uh, prostate biopsy uh, looked at, uh, then in France it costs around uh, 100 euros. In the U.S. it's above 500. So if you compare like the, the U.S. market to the French market uh, in terms of size, so the U.S. market is 30 times as large as France. We have around like 5x in population and 5x on, on the cost of the same. So, so it's, um, um, yeah, it's the obvious market. But then there's the question of, of timing. And I, I can say this, if Ibex, we actually we, we started with our, our first market was actually more in Europe, which was actually France and, and, and the UK. Um, and, and I think if we would have initially gone to uh, the US, uh, we would have seen uh, zero success and we probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been having this conversation right now. Um, and here there was also, this was a surprise for me because I kind of coming into this, my initial thinking about the U.S. is kind of very innovative, kind of uh, tech biased, uh, and, and, and that's kind of a place where you, you can go and move uh, fast. Uh, and I think that truth doesn't hold in healthcare. So there's opportunities to get some kind of foothold in the market, 
faster in uh, in, in Europe, uh, and regulatory reasons are also related to that. Um, so for us, uh, initially, it was easier to establish some kind of a foothold in, in, in the market and uh, in, in Europe, we gained some success there. Um, but then still, the US remains the largest market and, and at some point we, we decided to make uh, the leap. And I think at the end, the, the timing has to do when, when do you really have a, a product ready to sell in the US. I don't think there's a point in moving to the US, uh, let's say, just for fundraising, uh, because uh, U.S. Uh, investors will be very uh, inclined to see also that you have some U.S. Uh, success. Um, and kind of general observation, maybe it's true for investors and, and much more so even for, for our customers, U.S. customers. There's nothing that makes, uh, let's say, uh, 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 let's say a healthcare provider in the U.S. their, their eyes uh, glaze over faster than telling them about the customer you have in Europe. Uh, they really see it as completely unrelated uh, to the way they, they, they do business. Uh, and it's really super critical to have uh, some proof points in the US. So by the time I moved to the US, we already had a couple of US customers. Uh, and then, then we, we, we could have the, the, these conversations with, uh, yeah, with, with the US reference. Uh, so timing is important, of course, and it's a bit different for different digital health. It's not a cohesive uh, category, so it can be different for different companies uh, when they're ready. But then, again, that's my, my strict belief that at some point it becomes strictly necessary to uh, establish a, a U.S. business. Um, and I think also it's important for so, so for Israelis, it's obvious, but I see other companies, let's say from, let's say UK, Germany, so they have a large uh, local market. And then in that case, the thinking is often, okay, let's first succeed in our own local market. Uh, and when we're really well established there, let's move to the US. And I, I think that's a mistake because developing the US market as a slow process, it's going to take several years. And if you wait too long, you're going to then you might by, by the time you move, you'll discover there's a U.S. competitor who's already uh, taken hold of the market. And just yeah, these markets, Germany, U.K., France, are large markets. They're an order of magnitude less than the than the U.S. And it's my firm belief if you want to build a large digital health company, you have to be in the U.S. Um, so so it sounds like you're saying when you're funded by local sources in in Israel, you are nevertheless making a few sales in the U.S. when you don't have a permanent presence or large presence yet in the U.S. And then at a certain point, when you have a few sales, you make a big commitment to make a big move uh, to the U.S. At that point, you can also raise money. Maybe that's maybe that's at the same time as raising money from U.S. investors, and then. Uh, on the basis of having a few customers and sales in the U.S., you can now seek to scale it more rapidly now that you have a bigger presence in the U.S. and have more money from U.S. investors. Is that is that a rough sort of step-by-step -step thinking? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
You asked about uh, location. Um, so I, I have to say, uh, you know, I came across there's firms that will help you pick the optimal uh, location for your uh, uh, for your business for different considerations. Uh, I, I didn't I, I didn't go through a very clever process. I uh, Boston is a, is a reasonable place to open. There's a lot of obviously uh, great healthcare here. There's the talent here. Uh, and also, you know, I, I moved here with uh, with my family. It's a, it's a good good place to to raise a family. Um, could be, but salaries are high here. The, the cost of running a company from here uh, are, are high. Uh, yeah, maybe if someone here on the call is contemplating uh, a similar move, you could uh, uh, dive a bit uh, deeper. You know, who knows? Maybe Pittsburgh. Actually, I think probably Pittsburgh is also a good place, and uh, there's a lot, lots of talent there. Great healthcare system, um, and, and sometimes what what we find also that generally, um, like, uh, if we go to like the number one healthcare systems, and we want to partner with them, often. They kind of feel that, uh, yeah, they're doing. Maybe we need to pay them even for, to, to do that. Uh, no, seriously. And uh, I think it's, it's there's always an advantage to go kind of to the places which are maybe one step below, who still feel they, they want to prove out something to show that they're better than others. And and uh, we, we find that those kind of partners. Uh, are the best for us, those who kind of still are like have this hunger to prove themselves out. Uh, and, and maybe the same is also true for, for cities. If you, uh, uh, maybe it's kind of be a more welcoming environment. But again, that that's, uh, yeah, just my thinking. I've uh, not tried to start up a company and relocate to Pittsburgh. And so let, let me throw in there that what I'm hearing from uh, young company CEOs in Europe uh, is, you know, a lot of them ask the initial question, should I go to San Francisco? And certainly San Francisco has an incredible marketplace for innovation there. Um, but the hour difference is just too great. They, they, they want a comfortable move to the U.S. They don't want a big hour difference in the U.S. It's employees at the same company and they want overlap between before the employees in Europe leave for the evening and, and while the employees are in the U.S. are in the office. They want that overlap. So now if it's going to be East Coast time, you know, now they're looking at usually Boston, New York, Philadelphia. That's interesting because Philadelphia used to be a major pharma center and is a more affordable place than Boston or New York and is one hour from New York City. Um, and then there's there's also a look at Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. That's and then finally, there's Miami, which is uh, and, and you wonder you have to wonder if people are moving to Miami. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that makes me during the winter. That makes me kind of question my decision. If okay, Miami would have been a better place. Uh, and I actually know an Israeli entrepreneur of a young company who somehow got the company to have offices in New York and Miami. Uh, and I'm wondering how how he pulled that off. Um, uh, so, but uh, within within those, I think the the overwhelming choice is sort of near Boston or near New York uh, of those two. And it used to be Boston was known more for life science 
and the innovation economy. And New York was known for finance, but not for life science and the innovation economy. But just in the last 10, 15 years, New York has come on very, very strong. Um, and it's, 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 you know, it's existing life science infrastructure like hospitals has adapted to the innovation economy. Uh, and so now, uh, you know, it's, it's the, I would say that they're about equal choices with New York being busier, more expensive, denser, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, but the, the, the innovation economy in both New York and Boston is very strong. And the two cities are, it's about, a, depending on how you measure it, it's about a, a, a three to six hour trip, whether you're taking a plane or a, or a train or something uh, between the two cities. And so there, there are people who will leave Boston early in the morning, go to New York for the day and come back in the evening. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so you can treat the city, so you can make it work to be in one city and take advantage of everything in the other city as well. I can say this for our European listeners that they, they will might be disappointed from the by the high speed train between Boston and New York. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that both both Boston and the New York area are good good uh, ecosystems. I, I also agree that the point about the the time difference because like I've moved here, I'm still CEO of the company. I want to be engaged on a on a daily basis with my, my team back in Israel, as is my days often start at 6 a.m. Uh, because I want to be on, on calls with them. But still, I have a reasonable window within which I can I can talk with the team. If you're in, uh, in San Francisco, in the West Coast, it's, uh, yeah, it becomes um, yeah, a very narrow window. And you'll find yourself spending very, very strange hours uh, on the phone. So let me call out to our audience. Now's a good time for you to ask questions. I see some people have begun to ask questions. That's great. We, we will get to those questions. Um, uh, and uh, Yossi, let me also ask, um, was, there a, was there a clear demands by USVCs of things you had to do in order to raise money from USVCs? So for example, here's what I've heard. I've heard that they will want there to be a US entity, maybe a Delaware corporation for them to invest in. And they will want the CEO to move over, but if not the CEO, then they would want a head of sales or biz dev, a full-time head of sales or biz dev committed to the U.S. because they're putting money in for U.S. commercialization. So they want to see that money being spent on someone leading U.S. commercialization. So is that, did you encounter that? What were the conditions that you heard for, of U.S. investors investing? Yeah, so, so in, in our case, we were proactive with this. So I, so I, and then I, I didn't get to a point where uh, investors or potential investors uh, were asking me to move uh, to the yes, but, 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 but we just uh, did it. Um, and, but I think it is really important. It's not enough to have uh, like, like a sales office. And you used to have a head of sales and some salespeople. That, that's not really... Uh, a U.S. presence, and I, and I think they both investors, but also more importantly, the customers, they, they they want to see more. They want to feel they're engaging with the U.S. company. So it's you need to have also beyond the commercial people, you need to start also building up some of your clinical team in the U.S. and have people with subject matter expertise who can engage uh, with the professional community based in the US, because if you try to do it just from, from Europe or, or, or Israel, then it's always going to be um, time difference. It, it doesn't feel uh, the same. I think you, you need 
I, I think that the way to think about it is that, uh, yeah, for our customers here in the US, we want to feel like, yeah, any other uh, US, uh, US based company. Mm-hmm. There's a question here on the, on the chat. Yeah. Yes, so um, let's see. So uh, Ben, it looks like, is asking, what details can be shared about moving, such as costs incurred, processes that needed to incur, regulatory considerations? Um, yeah, how, how would you answer that? Uh, well, for, first of all, I mean, of course, there is a... Uh, there's a visa to, to get, which is a long process. And if you're moving with the family, then you should um, be sure that you, you start with that process uh, with enough time that you, you probably want to be moving at the beginning of the, the school year. Uh, so, so think about uh, the timing of that and ha- how long it takes. It's not just, uh, it's, it's not, it's not, not, a, not a, it's quite, quite a large investment in, in that process and quite a lot of, of, of proof on how you're going to be contributing to the U.S. economy through this uh, movement. It's, uh, especially this first movement, you don't have, like, it's, if you have an entity in the U.S. and you want to relocate someone that's already an established entity, that's easier. If you're just now establishing an entity uh, where they... It, it, yeah, it's more complex. Um, and then, yeah, about about the costs. Um, well, there's direct cost. Uh, I'll say the, 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 there's a lot of, of course, there's direct costs and re- relocating a person is, is expensive. Uh, I think it's also important in this to give a lot of thought to to family if you're moving uh, with family because uh, this is going to be a stressful period for uh, and there needs to be the support from the company to make that as uh, smooth as possible. There are companies which help with the relocation. Um, and I think it's, it's important to, there is going to be, you have, it has to be accepted that this is not, this is a stressful process, uh, but there should be investment in uh, reducing uh, this. Um, yeah, on the regulatory side, question, I mean, that didn't really change much in any case, whether we're here or not, if we want to sell in the US, uh, we need to have FDA clearance. There are, uh, by nature of being in, in the U.S., there are some uh, compliance just specific to healthcare, um, and just uh, yeah, it took us some time to realize that we and then we just need to invest it to get a consultant to help you with that and, and invest in that. It's not, not a big deal, but just something important to realize that once you're in the U.S., then there is some other levels of compliance which go beyond the FDA regulations. That, uh, that that's great. Um, so we also have a question from uh, from Jacob, uh, which is, what is the average time to pick up the deal by enterprise entity in the USA? In Europe, for healthcare facility to enter a deal is about six months. Um, so I'll, I'll just mention, by the way, there's a a there's a an, 
un, an unhappy complaint in the world of software vendors that sell software to hospitals. Um, often that's selling an EMR to the CIO or revenue cycle management to the CFO. And so the unhappy complaint is that in the world of regular B2B, a 12 months enterprise software sales cycle is a long time. And in the world of healthcare, a 12 months enterprise sales cycle for software is a short time. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Yossi, I'm, I'm not sure how to interpret this question exactly, uh, but uh, did, did, you, did you have any reaction to um, time to pick up a deal by the enterprise entity? Uh, you know, how, how long does it take to sell to a, to a clinic or a hospital or a, a pathology budget? Or, or, yeah. or lab. So yeah, I'd say uh, I mean sometimes we've been uh, it's gone fast, but typically I, I would keep in mind something like nine to eighteen months. Okay, so if you basically move to the U.S. without any, so for instance, I, I wouldn't move to the U.S. before I have some at least either as I said it already some customers or at least some processes in an advanced stage because being in the U.S. Uh, for a year and a half without any local customers, can, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll find yourself traveling a, a lot back to uh, to Europe. Um, there is still uh, hospital systems are uh, are hard, and, and, and actually the, the the challenge there in some of them is not so much the the actual business decision. In our case, we we work with a very large healthcare system. The the, the, the business decision was made quite quickly. Uh, and, and then we just went through uh, this uh, legal hell, IT hell, uh, uh, which really not only did it take a long time, but some of these systems are so big um, that you have to have a really strong salesperson on the here in the U.S. who understands how this works just to manage the process, because sometimes even the, the people in the hospital themselves, they don't fully understand uh, the process and the way you need to take ownership for it and, and push it through. Um, what does really help um, uh, is to get the, the uh, yeah, you, you have to get, uh, let's say, be, uh, understand HIPAA well. Uh, you should get some, we, we recently got what's known as a high trust certification. Uh, yeah, for ITC, that really shortens some of the conversations, uh, and I, I, I would think um, very heavy investments. Uh, but these things, these are these are the things which slow down the, the sales process. Not so much, uh, at least for us, not the business decision. Now, one more. And something seems to have gone wrong with the audio. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, so it's not clear. I'm not. I'm not hearing any any audio. Um, so apologies to our audience. Testing one, two, three. Um, uh, so if you can hear my voice in the chat, you can you guys? Yeah, now. Yep. I can hear. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. I couldn't before, but I can now. Great. Okay. Sorry. So what, what I was saying is that I would really try to find if it's relevant for your business organizations, 
where a decision can be made by a single person. So maybe, again, as a foothold, just have, maybe these are they're not going to be hospital systems, uh, maybe smaller clinics if relevant. For in our case, it's kind of mid-size pathology labs where typically, see there also, these are businesses which they're, as you know, they're not managed by physicians. Often they're managed by a business person. Uh, and if you can find an enthusiast that can make decisions, then that, that can really accelerate things. And we've had some, some nice successes that way. That, that, that's great. And so, uh, by the way, let me, let me add a little bit to this, which is that, um, you know, sometimes you are, uh, your, your, techno your product is so novel that you are effectively doing a sale that is the first time for you and also the first time that a very novel product has been sold, it may be sold in a new way, new kind of purchasing contract, new kind of technology. That kind of sale is often called uh, a business development sale, and it may lead to a pilot uh, uh, customer. And then once everything's been ironed out and you know how, how the category wants to buy and you have a version 1.0 of your product ready to go, then... Uh, you can sell that to many companies, and that's a sale done by a salesperson, not a pilot set up by a business development person. Um, and so, usually, that enterprise sale of an of a of a of a you know full release product to a customer, so that may have an enterprise sales cycle of roughly twelve months. Uh, uh, twelve months would would be good if you could if you could get it routinize it down to get to a twelve months sales cycle in selling to hospitals, to payers, to providers, to pharma as a tech buyer, to employers, um, a 12-month sales cycle would be pretty good. That's longer than B2B. Um, but when you are doing the first sale of the beta product to the pilot customer, um, in theory, that may take significantly longer. You're working things out for the first time. Maybe you're a SaaS company in an industry that's only ever sold using uh, licensing before. Uh, so you have to have new contracts, uh, et cetera. Um, and here, this, interestingly, this is where innovation groups at enterprises can be helpful. So certain leading hospitals in Boston, New York, other places have innovation groups and they're looking for specific innovations. Um, uh, or you could have the innovation group in pharma. Uh, and if, if you can match make with them, if, you, if, if what they're looking for, you know, they're looking for um, a, a, a new kind of um, SaaS solution uh, in, their, uh, in their CFO's office for managing all of the, <clears throat> the pricing and discounting issues in pharma or whatever. If you can match make with them, they might get you a pilot customer in significantly less than 12 months. But if you can't use these innovation offices to match make with you, then you have to find that matchmaking yourself. And so you might wind up having securing a pilot customer might take more than 12 months. Uh, so anyway, you'll see any, any reaction to, to that thoughts on that? Yeah. Maybe just the point about really selecting uh, the, the, the first uh, people in the commercial team in the U S I agree. It's, it's not salespeople. It's, it's business people uh, because yeah, they're doing something new. Typically, it's new for the new for the customer, new for the company. Uh, you know, our, our first customer here in, in, in the U.S. Uh, as far as we know, they were the first in all of North America to deploy AI and, and pathology. Uh, so there's a there's a learning curve uh, there. Um, 
Yeah, and, and, and I think that truth holds. I mean, there's holds for a while until you uh, uh, really reach that point that it's a you know repeating sales cycle that you can have kind of more of these kind of pure salespeople. You know, doing that. So, for a relatively small company, you, you want these people who can, yeah, more creative, uh, more independent. Um, so we have a question in our audience from Wesley who asks, uh, uh, did you ever consider a Delaware flip to set up a U.S. entity? And if not, why not? And if yes, what's the cost of doing it? Uh, so a Delaware meaning that to make the... Uh, yeah, so, so. Basically, so, making, the, the, making the foreign entity a subsidiary of the the US uh, entity? I, I think that's what it means, yeah. Yeah, so I think the, the upside of that, what, what I think is when you uh, get one day to IPO, maybe even in private rounds, it could have a positive impact on your valuation. If you're a, a US uh, company, um, if you haven't done this from day one, if your IP is outside of the it's a, it's a, you're outside of the U.S. Uh, there can be a lot of complexity, taxation issues around that. It's not just kind of changing the, the corporate structure. Uh, if you want to include in that moving the IP, which I, I think that is, is important, but that it becomes very complex. So. Uh, yeah, we're, we're uh, for now we're maintaining our current structure with the U.S. entity being a subsidiary. So, is, does that sound pretty normal that the U.S. entity is the subsidiary, but then at some point, ideally early earlier in the process rather than later in the process, you would you would flip it around to having the U.S. be uh, the um, you know the the higher uh, company and the lo your 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 prior headquarters being the subsidiary? I think uh, flip is hard. It's better to kind of do it right from the onset. Used to be the case where uh, years ago, 20 years ago, all of the Israeli companies, like from day one, they were set up as a Delaware corporation with a subsidiary in Israel. Over time, it changed, and there was a time where all of the companies uh, were yeah that set 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 up in, in Israel with the U.S. subsidiary, and I think the main reason for that was corporate taxes in the U.S. I think now that's changed, so I think that rationale doesn't hold, and I suspect also the different reasons we might might, might see that slip again. But again, I think that's something to be uh, considered very carefully. Uh, the best time to do that is on day day one. So that's an important podcast. What to think about when you're uh, setting up the corporate structure for your new startup. So it sounds like it's it, it's expensive, it's annoying, and it's better to do it on at birth or early. Uh, but because it's expensive, annoying, time-consuming, you may wind up having to push it out uh, a little bit. But it's still something that you have to think about and, and, and eventually do. Um, uh, so uh, can, can you give us a sense, um, when, when you're looking to fundraise, um, you know, we, we talked about when you fundraise. So 
if you don't have any customers in the US, you're probably, you're probably fundraising from local sources. But once you start getting customers in the US, now you have the option to move to the US to support those customers. Um, and now you also have the option to raise money in US markets. Um, so have you noticed a difference in, um, in investors? So what I've heard is, and maybe you have the option to raise money in, your, in Israel and Europe uh, and the US, but I think you chose to raise money in, in the US and many do. But I've heard that it's a more competitive marketplace in the U.S. There's more investor uh, uh, options. Um, there's possibly higher valuations, more capital available in the U.S. Um, but I've also heard that uh, European investors would build more of a long-term relationship and be with you through ups and downs and be more patient. But there's fewer of them uh, and fewer options and possibly lower lower valuations. Is, it, is that the general sense? It, was it a very obvious choice you had to raise money in the US uh, and not say the next round in Israel? Um, or uh, how, how do you, what are some of the trade-offs? What have you heard? What, what's the best strategy? Um, yeah, good, good, uh, good, good questions. Um, I, I think, right, that the, Early stage rounds, uh, Israel is a very it's it's a good Israel is a good place to to do uh, to do them. Uh, in Europe, I see often it's kind of different ecosystem where a lot of the early stage they get some kind of uh, government funding, actually. Uh, but then when yeah you're right when you really want to uh, to to scale, uh, then there's many more. Uh, uh, yeah, investors in the U.S. who can cut uh, these very, very large uh, checks. There's this kind of, uh, and, and I think there's a, I think in Europe there, there are these. Um, it's kind of for this kind of mid-range, somewhere between around around C and D, where there's maybe a gap in Europe. I think there are. Uh, I spoke quite a few uh, European investors, who were, we, we were kind of too too small for them. So they're kind of um, let's say kind of more conservative. Uh, now, I agree with you. I think the, the, the uh, European mentality could be a bit kind of, um, uh, yeah, some of these players are kind of maybe longer term uh, in terms of their, their thinking and more uh, more patient. I can't, you know, it, it's hard for me to, uh, you know, my experience is limited to what I know. Uh, one thing to consider, uh, and I think this is helpful, one is when, and, and I know this is a uh, been there. You know, you you pick. It's not that you have. I'm saying pick an investor, but uh, we don't always have that luxury. We we need to pick whoever wants to invest in our company. But if there are some options, so it is uh, uh, would be good to see that your uh, your investors in your countries of origins that they sit together and boards of companies where they have U.S. investors, so they can have that they have their network. That they can uh, pull in, so that that's happened uh, for us certainly. So we had one of our uh, Israeli investors very well connected, and they they brought in a U.S. investor. Uh, and another, um, I think, in our, you have some of these very large uh, international uh, VCs. So basically, kind of U.S. Uh, VCs, which also have a presence uh, in Europe or Israel, and then. 
Yeah, the, the, their kind of their mandate is to invest in, in, in the local market, so the conversation uh, uh, is easier with them. Uh, but then it puts the foot in the door to kind of uh, for follow on the ground. And another piece of advice I would, when speaking with U.S. investors, I would qualify out investors which have never made an investment outside of the U.S. Uh, I think, uh, as Stephen said, said before, uh, you know, uh, digital health, maybe in general, isn't perceived as kind of the, the, the easiest category to invest in. Uh, for a U.S. investor to make the leap, investing in this domain outside of the U.S. is unlikely to happen. So I, I would check that, the, that there are already companies somewhat similar to yours uh, in the portfolio of, of the U.S. investor that you're that's talking with. So, and what you mean by that is, is let's say an Israeli company, um, uh, uh, you know, has committed to the U.S. So they have their CEO has moved to the U.S. They have several employees in the U.S. They have customers in the U.S. Um, but for that, uh, so you're you're looking for if you found a venture fund that has never invested in that kind of company, it, its headquarters is in the U.S. Uh, its CEO is in the U.S. But it still has, it has 30 employees back in, in Israel, and now it's doing a U.S. expansion. Um, that if a company has not invested in those types of companies, be, if, if a fund has not invested in those types of companies, then it's, it's unlikely to. Uh, uh, and, so, and so you need to see um, that they've invested, not, not invested in it. So in other words, you're not necessarily looking for a U.S. fund that has invested in a company that is in Israel and only Israel. You're looking for them to invest in an Israeli company that has begun the move to the U.S. Uh, is, is that is that right, or are you looking for funds? funds that and John, I think you want to see that you're that they've invested in companies of similar profile, and even at the end, that's especially true for us. If the the the, the entity into which the investment is going to be made is uh, is outside of the U.S. regardless of our our presence here, and then that. It, Every geography, the way they has its own kind of uh, peculiarities, uh, and it's better to do business with someone who's already been through this. They know how to deal with this. It make, makes things much much uh, smoother. So that, that that's really interesting, and I uh, and I hadn't heard that before. And I do know that uh, I would say most U.S. digital health funds. Have not invested outside of the U.S. <laughs> um, so that uh, so so that we're we're talking about uh, you know uh, a fund that's made a significant investment in investing outside of the U.S. Um, and so that 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 narrows the pool a bit. I think uh, uh, it, it, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty strong qualification. Yeah, I think it will save time. But you have the, the let's see, uh, Bessemer. As a mm -hmm. presence in, uh, in Israel, I don't know if. Uh, by by the way, something for maybe for European uh, fans to know. A lot of the time, the Israeli uh, office of these international funds they actually have a mandate for all of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that could be something uh, to look at. So Bessemer Insights. Um, we have, for instance, you know, Dell invested in, in, in my company. They all, they have an office uh, 
And in Israel, as I said, often with a mandate which goes beyond Israel. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, uh, and uh, let's see. So we had another another question from Jacob. Um, how many case studies do you need in the U.S. for new customers, new prospects to trust your product? So for a case study, what what I'll say here is that uh, you know usually with a case study, it's a case where a customer bought your product, they used it through the whole cycle, they had a measurable outcome that was positive, and then they also let you use their name as well. That's very helpful if they let you use their name. And so there's a lot that can go wrong. You could have a customer and they could use it for only part of the cycle and not to the end, or they could uh, use it and not have a positive outcome. That happens, or they can not want you to use their name. Um, but so it's hard to get these lined up. But how many good case studies do you need of sales in the U.S. Um, to have to have to be able to to have, you know, have a reproducible sales process to future customers? What do you think? Uh, well, of course, uh, the more the better. But by, by Jan, what's really important is also uh, if you're at least in the clinical space is uh, journal publications. Uh, and actually one of the interesting things about journal, there is an advantage of having a journal publication uh, for the US Institute, but actually in kind of journal publications in a reputable uh, journal, even if the study was done, done outside of the US, still have value. Um, yeah, and I, I, I would say that I think what should be the, the way thing, I think it's better to have one really good quality case study uh, than many uh, that people will kind of, uh, so, and, and good quality first and foremost means uh, who you're doing it with. And so for instance, we've been, uh, and, and I think it's it's good to have like a, some kind of partner institute for, for, for that. So we, we've been working very closely with UPMC already for uh, yeah, six years or so. Um, and, yeah, we, we have a journal publication with them. They've gone to conferences and spoken on our uh, behalf, uh, not on our behalf, but speaking uh, about their experiences using uh, our, our technology. So I, I, I would, uh, and um, yeah, like someone like UPMC is a very large organization, a very credible uh, name. Um, and again, I'll go back to my advice uh, from from before. Uh, uh, yeah, U UPMC is an incredible organization, top tier uh, uh, healthcare organization. Uh, but I and I think they're also a bit more dynamic than some of the hospitals that come here in, uh, in Boston, for instance. Who are, um, I don't know, feeling very comfortable with where where they are. Um, so and for our audience, uh, any any last questions uh, for our audience? Uh, and let me throw in a, a question, which is: Do consulates help? Or uh, what should what should a a young German company, a young Israeli company, a young you know a British company um, look to their consulate for? Are, you know, can, can they help connect you with investors? Hmm. Not in my experience. Um, places where we've seen help from them. So it's not just a concept, but let's say kind of generally kind of state-sponsored uh, 
optimization. So sometimes in some of the like JPM, for instance, are also in health. There's like an Israeli, I haven't seen other countries do it. There is like an Israeli booth, so you can uh, leverage uh, that. Um, and yeah, and we've, we've had also through kind of these organizations, it's not necessarily the organization that's supporting the, the startup ecosystems, uh, we've had interesting uh, intros uh, come in. Um, yeah, th th those are uh, the main thing, but uh, I wouldn't, ex again, maybe some other countries doing an incredible job, but I, I wouldn't expect uh, too much of this. And here in Boston, I've seen just the, the level of activity in digital health. Uh, so I've, I've seen uh, the Israeli consulate has brought a tour of young Israeli digital health companies through Boston and New York, and they have tried to set them up with uh, investors and vendors and consultants who could help them with a, with a move. So I've seen that. Um, I, I've seen uh, the British and French consulates do events, um, and I've seen the Portuguese consulate and Spanish consulate, um, you know, uh, helping companies, but they typically don't do events in Boston. An event in Boston might be the British consulate might have a prominent speaker and they get both investors and British, you know, British, American and British investors and American and British um, uh, young companies, like a British company that moved here two years ago, they get the CEO of that company to attend and and mingle. So that would that would be an event in Boston or whatever. So th those are the ones. That, uh, Boston also has the German Life Science Center, uh, which which helps uh, uh, companies come over, not just in life sciences but also in digital health. Um, so that those are some of the uh, the resources I've seen active in the Boston area that seem to provide a little bit of help, um, but, uh, you know, but there, it's, it's definitely still up to the companies to take advantage of all the resources, so. Yeah, I think, yeah, they, they, they can make some connections for you at the end, there's a limit out. By the way, for instance, uh, the UK consulate in Israel is very, they, they actually helped us uh, in our UK business, so it works in different directions. I'm saying it's not necessarily your own consulate, uh, which uh, is the one you need to work with. Mm -hmm. That's great. So from our audience, any any more uh, questions? So, um, uh, Yossi, did, did you have any just reflections? We, we raised a lot of topics on this call. Uh, any other thoughts, uh, you know, assuming that the average attendee here is a young company leader who maybe hasn't moved to the U.S. but is considering moving to the U.S.? You know, I thought it was very interesting that you said, you know, do it sooner rather than later. Um, uh, uh, you know, to in order to really win in the U.S. market, it should be baked in from the beginning and, and make the move sooner rather than later. Um, any other, you know, summary thoughts uh, for our audience about or for the young company leader who's thinking of the move? Yeah. So, so one, yeah, I, I, I agree with what I said that I think you should be taken as, as a given that the move to the U.S. will eventually happen. There's a lot of considerations exactly when, uh, but probably one also can is to do it right after around because it's going to take time to bring in the, the results in the U.S. and you want to be in position for your next round that you can uh, already raise it from uh, 
U.S. investors. And I, I can also repeat uh, something uh, somebody told me. And it's pretty much true. I assume it's going to take, uh, I don't remember which is which, but twice the money and three times uh, the time you thought, so, or the other way around. But, yeah, uh, it, it can be a rough beginning. Um, and also, we won't go into this uh, right now. I think we're over time already. But uh, also, uh, hiring in the U.S. has... Uh, its own complexities and learning curve. Uh, and my advice is to have someone local assist you with that. That's great, wonderful. Um, well, well, thank you. Uh, so, um, uh, and with that, we'll, we'll wind down, but, th but thank you very much for joining us, Yossi. Thanks, Steven. It's good, good to be here. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with your host, Stephen Wardell, and thanks to our guest, Yossi Mosul. Um, our next show is Wednesday, October 25th at 4 p.m. The topic is What's Next in Age Tech with guest Max Zamko. Um, and for our Boston off, uh, audience, I hope I'll see you at our next Digital Health Drinks Night on Thursday, November 9th from 5.30 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel Bar. Um, uh, to find out more about these and other events and register for them in advance, you can go to stephenwardell.eventbrite.com to see all the events. Um, thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.